Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College offers the foundation for individuals seeking to blend creativity and practice so that graduates have the freedom to direct their skills and move the world forward. Its faculty takes a multidisciplinary approach to academic, professional, and social growth so that graduates have relentless optimism to navigate the changing environment. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today, we're talking with three people who will give us their perspectives on what it means to be a progressive Democrat in 2018. First, we hear from Dennis Kucinich, a candidate in the Democratic primary for governor in Ohio. He labels himself a progressive after a long and controversial life in politics. We also hear from Dr. Susan Burgess, a professor of political science at Ohio University who studies political movements. And we chat with Kyle Kondik, managing editor of Sabato's Crystal Ball at the University of Virginia and the author of The Bellwether, a book about Ohio's presidential voting history. The term liberal seems to be fading from the political landscape. Instead, daily, we as voters are bombarded with the term progressive. But what does that really mean? We hear about progressive candidates versus mainstream candidates. The term liberal has almost totally disappeared. It was really apparent in the 2016 primary with Bernie Sanders challenging Hillary Clinton. But now the term is working its way down to the states. In Ohio's Democratic primary, political rebel Dennis Kucinich is calling himself a progressive in his primary race against more mainstream candidates for the Democratic gubernatorial slot on the November ballot. His main opposition is former Ohio Attorney General Richard Cordray. Kucinich was a member of the Cleveland City Council at age 23 and then became an extremely young mayor of Cleveland. He also served as a congressman from Ohio for 13 years and ran for president twice in 2004 and in 2008. He also has served as a commentator and analyst on Fox News. What does it mean to him to be a progressive? The word progressive uh, stems from the word progress, and it's very forward-looking, and it means that you look at the at public service as an opportunity to be able to extend the power of government to the people, that you actually start with the people. When you think of the words, we the people, those words that are foundational to America, it actually speaks to an understanding that power extends from the people, that, that we're the ones who create the government. The government doesn't create us. And what's happened is that that equation's been inverted. 
it seems that the government has the power and the people do not. And when you get in a situation like that, then there are um, intermediaries who stand between the government and the people, who seize the power that the people ought to have, but now that the government has and using against the people. And I'll give you some real examples Please. here. You take what's happening with uh, fracking and the injection of, of toxic waste into the earth, particularly in southeastern Ohio and including in Athens County. People's lives are being ruined. Their land is being poisoned. The air is being polluted. The productive value of farmland is, is diminished. To extract natural resources, to export to other countries, to build other economies as if this area is a sacrifice zone, to me, that speaks to what happens when interest groups take over a government. That's what happens when there's an interposition, another interest between the government and the people. So what I stand for is to take the power of the people and have the decisions made by the people through a governor, myself, who stands with the people, who's from the people, and who's for the people. So this really is a transformational moment in the history of this state to be able to establish the right of people to have a government they can call their own. And uh, whether you're talking about, and, and, and the other part of it is, okay, I can tell you what we shouldn't be doing, but I can also tell you what we should be doing. We should be growing our agricultural economy. We should be helping farmers make more money. We should be using the productiveness of the land to take great strides in agroecology, to show farmers how to use new methods of, uh, of growing, how to improve the, uh, the micronutrient of their soil, to create a biome that's so rich with nutrients that, uh, that the crops they grow are, the, are, are better than ever. Farmers in this state can play a role in, in carbon farming and just through the process of photosynthesis, uh, bringing, bringing the uh, uh, carbon that's out there uh, creating a, a, a crisis in, in our global climate, uh, sequestering it through uh, agricultural practices which in, improve carbon soil content. You can measure that. You can monetize it. We can pay farmers uh, to carbon farm. There are so many things that we can do. We're not stuck with this idea of the only way that we can make money is to, is to pollute the, the air and, and to ruin the land and to ruin our, our water capacity. Um, so I'm, my candidacy is about a shift in thinking it's about an approach that puts people first. It's about raising the cause of public health and of public wealth to a new level. You talk about the prison industrial complex. Could, could you explain that to the average listener out there, what you mean by that? I, I just I, I think that the idea of private prisons is um, unacceptable in a democratic society. Uh, it, uh, it enables um, illicit influence in the administration of justice. Uh, it causes, uh, you know, in some cases we heard of a Pennsylvania judge, for example, who was sending uh, people to, uh, young people to prison and, and had a financial relationship there. Private prisons, there should not be any profit 
and sending people to prison because what happens is you create a mentality where more people get sent to prison. And uh, these companies find a way to donate to politicians and enable them to keep uh, building private prisons. I don't believe in any kind of privatization, frankly. I, I fought a privatization of an electric system years ago that saved the taxpayers of Cleveland hundreds of millions of dollars. So generally, privatization is a ripoff of the public. But we have privatization of prisons. We have privatization of schools. Uh, we now have privatization of, of jobs uh, through Jobs Ohio. It seems that you're bucking the trend uh, that has occurred over the last decade. Actually, Your Honor, I specialize in that. <laughs> I know you do. That's that's what, I, that's what I do through my whole life. I know life. you do. I lead the way in wars that are wrong and in, in challenging them. I lead the way against uh, laws which undermine civil liberties like the Patriot Act. I challenge the Federal Reserve long before anyone else did except Ron Paul. I work to, uh, to make sure that, that real freedom is reflected in individuals' ability to make decisions affecting their own life without government uh, making the bigger decisions that cause people to – to lose, uh, to lose hope, to lose economic standing, which you know, war does. So you talked about prisons. There won't be any private prisons when I'm elected governor. Schools, I intend to do everything I can to, to improve public education, to eliminate the for-profit charter operators, to put that billion dollars a year that's going into the for-profit charter system into public education, Jobs Ohio, I'm glad you mentioned it. State privatized the uh, Department of Liquor Control and, uh, and put all the revenues into this Jobs Ohio program, which has been like some kind of a, a relief fund for uh, executives who are making six-figure salaries. What do they do? No one knows. And some of the programs they're incentivizing are creating additional problems and pollution and you know, there, there no real, no real benefit. I want to see that money used for helping small businesses, or, or to help grow the economy of of areas like we're in in Athens. Obviously, uh, Attorney General Dewine is sitting atop the Republican ticket. Uh, the Democrats are are having a primary, and you're part of that. Talk about the, the, a contested primary and how that might be good for the party or bad for the party and how it defines the party? Well, the party has been trying to rig this election. I mean, they've done everything they could to get candidates out of the race. And they've done it for one candidate, Mr. Cordray. Now, frankly, the Democratic Party, uh, out of, you know, working out of Columbus, has been everything but defunct. They, they've failed to win one state election after another. And why? Because too often the candidates are difficult to distinguish from the Republicans. People will vote for a real Republican as opposed to uh, a Democrat who, whose identity is indistinct. We'll be back after this message. At the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University, Students and faculty aren't just ready for change, they're hungry for it. The Scripps College of Communication was awarded $878,000 by Ohio University for an immersive media initiative that will allow students to become skilled leaders in immersive media, especially virtual and augmented reality. 
The college's Game Research and Immersive Design Lab will serve as the hub for the initiative and provide several million dollars worth of equipment, processes, intellectual property, and award-winning scholars and partnerships for the project. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Dr. Susan Burgess is a professor of political science at Ohio University. One of her areas of research is the area of political movements. She defines for us what a progressive is and goes into some of the history of that movement. Progressivism, when we think of that historically, we think of it as arising around the turn of the 20th century. And it's people who are focused on a platform of, you know, reform and good government, like sort of anti-corruption, you know, trying to come to terms with like, you know, like the Industrial Revolution and the transformations that it brings to bear on society, right? So there's a lot of um, skepticism about Republican government by which, you know, I mean, um, um, indirect democracy, representational democracy, right? So, so part of what comes out of progressivism is, uh, you know, the initiative movement. So like we see that most prominently now in like California, you know, in the referendums and prop, prop, you know, all the propositions that they have on their ballot all the time. And the idea is that the people should be able to, um, you know, that, that politicians should directly appeal to the people, not go through institutions, which the progressives regarded at that time as largely corrupt. Uh, you know, and then the other part, another part of the progressive movement was um, women were starting to become a political force. So, uh, you know, there's a bunch of social workers, uh, you know, most prominently we would know of someone like Jane Adams or something like that, who saw, you know, who started the sort of... Um, you know, movement to integrate immigrants more effectively and efficiently. They were a lot about efficiency, <laughs> efficiently into society. And, you know, they um, uh, were also um, sort of, you know, tolerance people, um, anti-alcohol, right? Because they saw that as being threatening to women because when guys would drink, then they would come home and beat their wives and that kind of stuff, right? So the progressives were arrayed around a bunch of different items that all pertain to ways in which the society was transforming at a rapid rate, having to do with industrialization, but also like the influx of immigrants and just industrialization more generally. So now when we think of progressivism, we don't, we don't think of it in that specific way, but when we think about it, you know, in terms of the center left of um, the Democratic Party, we could also say that it is another time of great social and technological transformation, right, with the rise of the Internet and all that, and globalism. And so these parties, both the Republican and Democratic Party, are trying to come to terms with what those changes will mean for, you know, everyday people in, the, in a similar way that the progressives were trying to do, you know, way back when. It's just the terms of the discussion have changed, right? And we see similar sorts of things happening. So, right, so President Trump, you know, he's not so concerned with institutions. He wants to directly appeal to the people. Same thing with Bernie Sanders, right? So we see this kind of populism and this disdain for 
corrupt institutions, you know, so President Trump talks about draining the swamp and all that. Similarly with Bernie Sanders, you know, he wa- he's not so interested in building up, you know, the Democratic Party per se. He's interested in making very powerful, direct appeals to the people. And he is a powerful speaker to a different constituency than President Trump, but they're both powerful, direct speakers to the constituency in their own way. You know what I mean? So these kinds of things have happened only this kind of like, uh, you could say realignment of political parties has only happened six times that we think about in the entirety of American history. And it always, it happens about every 40 years and it happens at times when there is great technological change, you know, and great social like shifting going on. Um, I'm sure you could think of other times. So, for example, you know, uh, the most prominent time would be, you know, during the time of like slavery, uh, Lincoln comes to power, right? And the, you get the new party and the Republican Party and so forth. It's appealing to different constituencies. The parties are like, you know, reshuffling the deck. They can no longer rely on their traditional constituencies or during the New Deal, you know, same thing. Right. Hoover gets displaced, you know, like the, the Republicans uh, sort of northeast, you know, conser- uh, business guys and long dominated, you know, that gets undone by the Great Depression an enormous uh, social and political and economic transformation. Similarly, the New Deal coalition gets undone uh, when the Reagan revolution happens in 1980, you know, so it appears that we are overdue for such another realignment and the rise of politicians like um, Sanders, Trump, and possibly, you know, on a more local level, Kucinich, suggest a kind of like, I don't know what, like a kind of reshuffling of the political deck, you know, a kind of like different set of people who are being appealed to in different kinds of ways. And it's not clear yet for either the Democrats or the Republicans what their constituencies are going to turn out to be in this new era, right? So it's clear that the Democrats can't just do the um, New Deal thing anymore. And it's becoming increasingly clear under President Trump that the Republicans cannot count on their old coalition of, you know, uh, Northeastern business people aligned with evangelicals, you know, and the religious right, uh, you know, and the other parts of their coalition, right? They just can't bring that together anymore as evidenced by you know our governor our current governor thinking about running for president so you know americans aren't so used to that because you we go through these long periods of political stability everybody knows who's a democrat who's a republican who belongs to who but there are these periods periodically when it is not so clear and they're very unstable periods in general because of the like background technological things that are happening but they're also very unstable politically. And the United States starts to look and feel like more like a multi-party system just for a little bit, right? So there's like a wider range of choice. Like who in the world would think in a normal time that a democratic socialist like Bernie Sanders would come to the fore? (laughs) You know, like that's who would think that that would happen? Well, in this kind of time, that can happen. So we start to have a more of a range of choice that you would get more like, say, in a European multi-party system. Usually, you know, people say things like, oh, the Democrats and Republicans, how much difference is there between them anyway? Tweedledum and Tweedledee, right? And that's very stable. 
You know, that's a very like we don't so we don't worry about politics during those times. But during these unsettled times, we get a wider range of choice for a little while anyway. Um, and, but it's very unstable. People like really worry because they're not used to having to deal with all this uncertainty. And eventually it like typically in history anyway, it has settled down after a while. And the third, the so-called third party candidates and their platforms get absorbed into um, mainstream parties. Like, so the progressives, you know, they sort of fall away after a while and some of their ideas get absorbed into, uh, you know, Republican party as well as the Democratic party. And then things just really um, unwind, uh, you know, during the great depression. Help me out here where somebody like Rand Paul and sort of uh, self-proclaimed mm-hmm. libertarians fit into into this sort of m- mashup between populism and, and progressivism. Yeah. So libertarians are really interesting because they have a kind of right wing and a left wing of their own. <laughs> You know, so the right wing libertarians are really interested in very minimalist government like Rand Paul and kind of like government's necessary to the extent that it's necessary. It's necessary to like protect property, you know, maybe, you know, some individual rights or something like but but generally the the libertarian platform is to keep government out of private decision making. You know, like this is just people are better off again that's sort of like direct, you know, appeal to the people. People are better off making their decisions by themselves. That's why someone like Rand Paul is very against taxation, you know. But there's also a left wing of the um, uh, libertarians that are, um, like, they're basically almost anarchists, you know. And anarchist is a word that people throw around loosely sometimes, you know, and people think like, oh, anarchy means chaos or something. That's not really what that means. What it means is people, again, who are very concerned about giving power to government and the ways in which it might be abused. So the left-wing libertarians, or they might call themselves anarchists, I guess, some of them, they're more um, concerned with like how we form communities, intentional communities, and consent to very intentionally the ways that we give power to um, other people and power to institutions that might be over us, right? So those, um, you know, people in, in institutions only have legitimacy insofar as we actively consent to them all the time. You know, just like sort of consent that can be inferred, like, you know, say, you know, we consent to the, to the state's power because we ride on the roads all the time that they have made or something. That doesn't count. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> It has to be really direct and intentional and constant, and they deal um, through consensus, you know? So, um, yeah, that they're sort of longstanding. They're not – it's true that someone like Rand Paul has had more of a standing in this kind of more unstable time, and again, that's part of the wider array of choice that arises during these times. But those people, the libertarians on the right and the left, they're always there. I mean, just as the democratic socialists are, you know, and other people, it's just that they become more visible, more legible in these particular points in history. We're talking uh, about these upheavals that that you talked about, six of them, and you pointed out slavery and the New Deal and, and the Reagan Revolution. 
Would I be correct that this is the first time that we've had this kind of upheaval in what I'm calling the technological age, uh, where everything is has become so global and so technologically based? Uh, what role does that play in all of this? Yeah, I mean, the globalism is different, right? Because technology has made a certain kind of globalism um, and connection possible that wasn't there before. I mean, the through line to the past is that technology of different sorts always seems to play a role in these kinds of transformations. But this is the specific way that it's expressing itself now is um, partly through this kind of globalism. And so, you know, as part of the Reagan revolution, part of what the globalism became about was um, like sort of global capital, the flow of global capital, right? And, and government staying out of the way of the flow of global capital, right? So deregulation, um, you know, um, dis destruction of the union movement, which stands in the way of this flow of global capital, um, you know, more power to corporations to govern, like in, you know, World Trade Organization and that kind of thing, to, um, you know, help that flow along. I mean, one other thing that's interesting to think about uh, that's not related to that per se is that in these six times, um, some political scientists have um, noticed that often what happens is before the realignment occurs, you have what they call a critical election, right? So with the Reagan revolution, the critical election was uh, Nixon in 68. And it's not that the Republicans instantly take over, right? Because the New Deal coalition is still kind of has strong power in the system. But what happens after Nixon, right, is Jimmy Carter comes in. And he is a one-term failed president who comes in um, – on an outsider platform, you know, he was a politician in Georgia and all that, but, you know, he's kind of outsider to Washington. And these presidencies are often like one term and failed because they cannot hold the coalition together. And that's what happened to Carter. He couldn't rely on the New Deal coalition. That happened also with Hoover before uh, Franklin Roosevelt came to power and the New Deal shift, right? So some people have started to say, that President Trump might be one of these kinds of one-term failed presidencies, which they call disjunctive, disjunctive presidencies. And they say disjunctive because, like, the party becomes fragmented. They can't hold the coalition together. So, like, Trump cannot legislate effectively. You know, apart from the tax bill that he put through, he has not been able to uh, effectively legislate or show much interest in it, perhaps. But that's a different question. But anyway... So, so if, as many political scientists think, President Obama's election in 2008 and, 2000, and 2012 was the critical election, which signaled, it's kind of like canary in the coal mine, right? Like it signals a change to come. Then it is possible that tr President Trump, if he is not reelected in 2020, would become this kind of disjunctive presidency. And if a Democrat wins then the parties might, the party might, the Democratic Party would like realign and pull to the left, right? So it kind of try to pull the center to the left or toward a more progressive uh, direction, you know, because it's been long pulling to the right. 
so so far to the right that it's probably gone too far to the right. It's not even in the center anymore. And that doesn't work in American politics so well. Kyle Kondik has visited with us before. He's the managing editor of Sabato's Crystal Ball. He works with polling about elections, but he has also studied Ohio and written a book called The Bellwether about Ohio's presidential voting. He also gives us some idea of what it means to be a progressive at a state level. I think that the term liberal used to be more associated with um, sort of the left wing of the Democratic Party, and progressive has sort of replaced that in terms of the terminology. And um, I think that some people who use the term progressive don't necessarily maybe know what the history of that, that term is because it sort of dates back to you know, more than 100 years ago with Robert La Follette in, in Wisconsin with the Pro- Progressive Party and you know the B- Bull Moose uh, Republicans with uh, Teddy Roosevelt and there were all sorts of uh, you know progressive era reforms you know one of those you, you could sort of look at as being you know the prohibition of alcohol which i don't think is <laughs> is something that that the modern you know modern day so-called progressives really um, you know, really, really would, would, would think about. Um, but, you know, I, I think basically what, you know, when, when people say, you know, progressive Democrat, they mean liberal Democrat in sort of the old, more traditional definition of the term. So that the listeners will understand, uh, on the national level, uh, people that have uh, currently embraced the progressive label would be Senator Bernie Sanders, Senator Elizabeth Warren, uh, and and some others in that group of the Democratic Party, the ones that challenged Hillary Clinton in many respects. Yeah, I think that's right. Although Hillary Clinton also, I, I think, ran as a um, a, f- a fairly left wing candidate in uh, in twenty sixteen, and you know, I also wonder if if some of the these uh, these definitions or phrases that we use. Um, have maybe have less to do with policy than about sort of uh, um, a, a person's kind of image and also a, per, a person's uh, um, perceived distance from the so-called party establishment. I mean, certainly, you know, Bernie Sanders is known as, you know, one of the, um, you know, big liberals or progressives or however you want to put it in the country. Um, but Sanders also is technically not a Democrat, and he, you know, he did run for the Democratic presidential nomination, but um, he has pointedly decided to run as an independent for re-election to the U.S. Senate uh, this year in um, Vermont, and he is not someone who you would say is a uh, favorite necessarily of, of party leadership in the sense that I don't think that a lot of uh, so-called Democratic insiders would want Bernie Sanders to be their party's. Uh, presidential nominee uh, in in 2020. Some commentators and and pundits said that it was the progressive wing of the Democratic Party that cost Hillary Clinton the the presidency. People who either didn't vote, some people crossed over, uh, but a lot of people sat out, uh, at least according to folklore, sat out the uh, election. If that's true, is, is that something that Cordray should be worried about or frontrunners should be worried about with uh, a progressive candidate like Kucinich? Oh, I think that's possible. I mean, you know, one problem for Clinton, and, and this, this really shows up, I think, in Ohio, but in other places too, and, and actually in, you know, Athens County is a great example. Of this. I, I don't think that 
college town turnout was particularly good um, for Clinton. And there also was some bleeding of support to uh, someone like Jill Stein. And, you know, that Jill Stein's margin or share of the vote certainly would have been enough to flip Ohio. But, you know, hypothetically, if, if those Stein voters had voted for Clinton in states like Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, she could be president. I mean, the you know, the election was decided by about 78,000 votes uh, over uh, over three states, uh, you know, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan. And so you could attribute her loss to all sorts of things when the um, when the margin was so close. I mean, I think in Ohio, I think the perhaps the bigger concern than progressives sitting out, you know, people who may think that, that let's say, if Cordray wins the nomination, that he's not liberal enough and they don't come and vote for him. Uh, I think a, maybe a bigger problem in Ohio is that uh, Democrats really need excellent turnout from uh, African-American voters uh, in Cleveland and Columbus and Cincinnati and, and in other places, too. Um, certainly Barack Obama got that in 2008 and 2012. Clinton did not get that level of turnout in 2016. Uh, and, uh, you know, Cordray is going to – Cordray or again, whoever the Democratic nominee is – uh, is going to need that level of support. That's not necessarily, you know, there's some overlap between the um, uh, sort of progressive wing of the party and the Af- African-American voters, but it's not necessarily, um, you know, 100 uh, percent crossover. But, uh, you know, having some sort of uh, strategy to, um, you know, to to generate the, that kind of the, the turnout in, in uh, African-American community is, is going to be really important for whoever the Democratic nominee is. The progressive movement, if if one could call it that, uh, we see it uh, here in Ohio with Kucinich's uh, uh, candidacy. Do you see this replicated given the popularity of Bernie Sanders and, and others in the Democratic Party? Do you see this replicated in other states in more of a grassroots way? Um, well, you know, one one thing that's, I think, important to remember is that you know, Hillary Clinton did carry Ohio pretty comfortably in the Democratic primary in 2016. Um, and also, I think what we've, you know, d- discovered, uh, you know, in looking back at the 2016 primary season is that, you know, a lot of people who voted for Bernie Sanders voted for him because he was not Hillary Clinton, as opposed to because he was a um, strong left-wing candidate. Uh and, you know, that, I mean, Sanders performed really pretty well in states with some of the most conservative Democratic primary electorates in the country, uh, be it West Virginia or Kentucky or Oklahoma. You know, those are states where in 2012, Obama actually bled primary support to essentially unknown candidates just because the Democratic voters there, you know, basically vote in Democratic primaries, but they're functionally Republicans. Uh, but there are a lot of those kinds of voters in Ohio, too. And, you know, Ohio does have some history of electing, you know, fairly liberal uh, candidates to statewide office, I'd say particularly in the Senate. I mean, Sherrod Brown's a great example. But uh, going back in history, Howard Metzenbaum was a pretty liberal member of the U.S. Senate who won three terms in Ohio. Uh, Stephen M. Young before him uh, was another liberal Democrat from Ohio. Um, but, you know, I think that, that Democrats running in Ohio have, you know, have also had some success running to the center. I mean, I think Ted Strickland tried to run as that kind of candidate in 2006. 
Um, and, uh, you know, I think if you go back a little bit further, you, you, you know, you, you would see other candidates like that. And, you know, I, I, I think there's a tendency, particularly on, uh, the strong left and the strong right to say, Hey, instead of trying to go to the middle, we need to win by, you know, being more liberal or being more conservative. Um, but that's not always how it works, particularly because, you know, in a state like Ohio, you do have a lot of, there's a lot of swing voters and a lot of voters who, um, you know, may not be particularly strongly ideological one way or the other. Today, we've been talking with Dennis Kucinich, a candidate for governor here in Ohio, Dr. Susan Burgess, a political science professor at Ohio University, and political pundit Kyle Kondek of Sabato's Crystal Ball at the University of Virginia. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or at NPR One. Spectrum also is available at the NPR One podcast directory. We welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it. If you have questions or comments about any of our podcasts, please direct them to me by email at hodson at ohio.edu. That's Hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.